Good morning, everybody. How about a round of applause for the worship? <laughs> round of applause for the Go Ben sign that the students bring every time I speak. Thank you. Thank you guys very much. So this is a weird beginning to the sermon, but it's a question that is sort of worth asking. Has anyone here ever eaten a chaffle? Show of hands. More than the 9 a.m., because the 9 a.m., there was one person that has tried a chaffle. But you guys are definitely much more vocal, because I heard a sea of what? Okay, a chaffle, a cheese waffle. Already sounds gross to some people. I'm seeing faces. So here's the thing. I'm on, I'm starting a new diet. It's a keto diet. I can't eat bread. And one of the alternatives that I found is a thing called a chaffle. You take a bowl and you mix an egg and a little handful of cheese together and you put it in a waffle maker and it comes out the size and the texture of a waffle. You can just pick it up and carry it and then you can make like sandwiches with it. It's good. Now I saw that and I thought that's incredible and that's going to help me on this diet. I'm finally going to be able to cut out like carbs like I need to or like I want to or whatever. And I explained it to a friend of mine and his immediate reaction was, ugh, that's disgusting. Personally, I don't see the difference between that and like an omelet, like an egg and cheese omelet. But to some people, the thought of egg and cheese in a waffle maker is just yuck. So there are two perspectives when it comes to the chaffle. Some people like it. Some people don't. That's fine. But we know the old adage, the old saying that there's two sides to every story. Here's another example that I found online because I loved this example. It's about an argument, a real-life argument, that took place between a husband and a wife. And they both made journal entries that night about that day. And later on in their marriage, when they shared them with each other, they were cracking up at the perspective because there's two different ones. There's two sides to every story. And it just seemed so funny to see these two side by side. So they put it online for people to laugh at. I found that, and I'm going to share it with you now. So here's her diary entry, the wife's. Tonight, I thought my husband was acting weird. We had made plans to, I wish I could like dim the lights and set the mood. We had made plans to meet at a nice restaurant for dinner. I was shopping with my friends all day long, so I thought he was upset at the fact that I was a bit late, but he made no comment. Conversation wasn't flowing, so I suggested that we go somewhere where we could talk, somewhere quiet. He agreed, but he didn't say much. I asked him what was wrong. He said nothing. I asked him if it was my fault that he was upset. He said he wasn't upset, that his mood had nothing to do with me, and just to not worry about it. But how do you not worry? On the way home, I told him that I loved him. He smiled slightly, and he kept driving. I can't explain his behavior. I don't know why he didn't say I love you too. When we got home, I felt as if I had lost him completely and he wanted nothing to do with me anymore. He just sat there quietly and watched TV. He continued to seem distant and absent. And then finally, with silence all around us, I decided to go to bed. About 15 minutes later, he came to bed, but I still felt like he was distracted and his thoughts were somewhere else. He fell asleep, and I cried. I don't know what to do. I'm almost sure that his thoughts 
are with someone else. My life is a disaster. So that's her diary entry. That's her side of the story. This is his journal entry, his side of the story. Motorcycle won't start. Can't figure out why. That's it. It's the whole journal entry. <laughs> That's the whole story. <laughs> there are two sides to every story, and very rarely do we get to hear what the other side is, what the other angle is. We live in a culture that has become so obsessed with our side and our perspective, and honestly, a culture that's become so obsessed with confrontation that we've lost the ability, you would say ability, I would actually use the word art, we've lost the art to hear the perspective of other people. To hear, listen to, and understand the perspective of someone else. There's two sides to every story, and there are two perspectives to every story. Think about any disagreement that you have in your life right now. Any fight that's taking place in our country currently, it's because there's two sides looking at a situation, screaming their own opinion, and then calling the other side deaf for not hearing their opinion. And in that whole process, for some reason, we just completely miss each other. This is true in our spiritual lives as well, and that's what we're talking about this morning. There's a perspective into this conversation, and it comes from the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. So, spoiler, if you have a Bible, you can go to Proverbs, chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. Um, but we're going to stop at 9, and there's a reason. I'll get into all of that. Um, and I really would like to include God's perspective into this whole story. Some of what I'm explaining right now, this probably feels like Sunday school to you guys. You've learned this before. Um, if you've been a Christian a long time or if you've been following Jesus for a long time. So I'm speaking directly to those people right now. If you have been a Christian for a long time and you don't really think you have anything to learn about the perspective of others, our perspective is probably not as biblical as we would like to think it is. We're so used to being here in church and we're so used to following Jesus over the many, many years that we have followed him that we feel like we know scripture well enough and in doing that, we sort of lose humility and we lose the humility to admit that maybe, probably, we have blind spots which we have plenty of. And when we feel like we've learned something well enough, we lose a healthy interest in it. Not an interest altogether, but a healthy interest. The kind of interest that has you wanting to know more and to be more involved, okay? Um, I, I, I did a 9 a.m. I tried to do a comparison healthy interest. If you'll indulge me, this is the same thing. So when I was a little bit younger, I got obsessed with a TV show called Lost. Have you guys ever heard of Lost before? Fantastic show. Um, and I loved the mystery in that show because, first of all, the show reinvented the cliffhanger. I don't know if you guys watch TV all that often, but it used to be before Lost, cliffhangers happened at the end of every season. 
they would do something and you'd be like, oh my gosh, how can they do that? Or how can they kill off that character? Or how can that person get married to the one that she doesn't love? And you'd have to wait an entire year to find out why. Halfway through Lost, they started doing cliffhangers. Halfway through the first season of Lost, they started doing cliffhangers at the end of every episode so that you would stress out during the week. And then somewhere in the second season, they started doing cliffhangers before commercial breaks so that you would stress out in that five-minute period. And I just remember walking around my living room when I was in college, stressing out, and my Japanese roommate saying something in Japanese, stressing out. And the two of us just like, oh, and he's walking around like, oh, it's a kanga you know. And we can't like, we can't wait for that five-minute period to end so we can like sit back down and see what happened. They reinvented the cliffhanger on that show. And it was such a stressful experience. But one of the really cool things about it was just the mystery overall. Because there were so many questions on that TV show that people wanted answered. Like, for example, why is there a polar bear on a tropical island? Why is there a pirate ship nowhere near the shore in the middle of a tropical island? Why is there a giant smoke monster on the island? Or my favorite was, why is there a statue with four toes on the island? Doesn't really make a lot of sense. The questions all got answered as the show went on. Um, some people don't agree with that, but they did. If you, you know, you gotta, you gotta like read a lot and really <laughs> figure it out. But they all got answered as the show went on. Um, but the problem with it was every single time that they answered a question, every time they gave you an answer, it presented like three new questions. And that's how they keep you invested. You never had everything all figured out. There was always so much more to it than you thought. And honestly, I had a healthy interest in that show, and I feel like that's why I could probably answer most of the questions about it. Um, Lost only lasted for six years, but if you had a healthy interest, you talked about it well after it went off the air. If you had a healthy interest in the Bible, your mind would be blown every single time you open those pages. But we've been Christians for so long that we kind of become fickle when it comes to scripture. We think that we already know what the book could teach us because we've already read most of it, all of it, some of it. We've got the general idea. Rather than allowing scripture, which is 100% God-breathed truth, to guide us on its own, to teach us on its own, we need to have teachable hearts. Does that make sense? So if we're going to have teachable hearts, if we're going to learn about this, uh, I really want to dive into scripture. So we're going to do Proverbs chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. Um, and it says, we can make our own plans, but the Lord gives the right answer. People may be pure in their own eyes, but the Lord examines their motives. Commit your actions to the Lord and your plans will succeed. So verse one, I'm going to come back to because it bears coming back to, but verse two, take a look at verse two there. See that and understand that we are all inclined to become partial when it comes to judging ourselves. When it comes to how we see ourselves, we are extremely partial. All the ways of man, all of his plans, all of his actions, they're all clean in his own eyes. 
we see ourselves as clean. We see ourselves as pure. We see nothing wrong with our actions, nothing for which we should condemn ourselves. However, there is a pretty great deal of pollution clouding our vision when it comes to ourselves. And most of that pollution, we aren't even aware of it, whether it's an argument with a friend, um, whether it's a disagreement with family, or a lot of times just an examination of our own sin, we are inclined to see ourselves as pure. And we could probably justify our actions to anybody if we need to. We could justify it no matter how serious the sin is. But the Lord, the Lord examines our motives. The Lord sees our spirits. He not only sees our ways, but he sees our hearts. And I covered that the last time that I spoke, what the human heart is capable of. And it's by his judgment that we must stand or fall. So we're told that even though he knows our spirits, if we commit our actions to the Lord, our plans will succeed. And it's a very desirable thing to have our plans, not only to have our plans succeed, but just to have our plans heard, to be invited to the table, to be respected enough to be listened to, right? To have them heard, understood, respected, not just tossed aside and ignored. And the only way to have our thoughts and our plans established is to have those thoughts and plans committed to God. Now that's a lot to take in. So let me try to sum up. Um, Here's the basic idea that I'm trying to get across. What we learn from those three verses is that there's two sides to our story. There is our side, which we're very familiar with, and then there is God's side. Our side and God's side. And when it comes to those two perspectives, God's side needs to be esteemed. God's side needs to be esteemed. God's side needs to be honored. You can make your plans, do what you feel you're called to do, and hold yourself responsible to it. That's how you honor your side of the story. And then understand that God is over all of it, no matter what plans you make. Because he is sovereign, and he has something in store for you and your plans himself. Something that may not be exactly what you envisioned. And when that comes up, we need to honor that. There are two sides to this story, and they go together. I've been asked in student ministry um, if I believe in free will or predestination. Isn't that a fun argument? You believe in free will or predestination uh, because they're two different things. Do you, uh, or God's sovereignty is another way to word predestination. So another way to put it, are we saved because God chose us and predestined us to choose him and his way of living? Or are we saved because we chose that for ourselves in our free will? And the answer is Yes. The answer is yes to both. Free will and predestination are both found in Scripture. They're both found in the Bible, and they work parallel to each other. The last time I spoke, I told a story about Charles Spurgeon, great theologian if you're not familiar with him. Uh, But here's another awesome quote from him. A church member once asked him how he could reconcile man's free will with God's sovereignty. And his answer was, I wouldn't even try. I try not to reconcile good friends. 
that's probably a perspective that we could all have. Both the free will of man and the sovereignty of God are biblical truths, and both of them work together, and we should honor that. Honor that. There's two sides to that story. So what is your plan? Which way am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do with my life? How is God going to guide me? How am I going to know that God is guiding me? Maybe you're in a situation like that this morning. You might be trying to figure out which way do I go, right? What's the wise decision? Why can't God just tell me? And yeah, we can all think of like small examples, like what am I going to get for lunch today? You know, something along those lines. It's not Chick-fil-A. They're not open. So it's something that God's leading you in a different direction this morning. Um, So it could be small examples, but there's bigger examples too. What kind of plans do I have for my life? Is this really the career that I should be in? Is there something better? What should my major be when I go to college? What kind of college should I be going to? What kind of college should I encourage my kid to go to? What kind of career should I encourage my kid to have? Have I prepared them for life outside of this house? Have I raised them right? No matter what your age is or what direction you're going in, we still need guidance. We still need to make plans. And we still need to know how to do that. Or if you're anything like me, maybe 2020 taught you that the best laid plans don't always work out. Right? Plans shut down nationwide, (laughs) globe-wide, whatever you want to say, in 2020. Um, It doesn't matter how many places you have your plans written down, in your phone, on your planner, your family calendar. Sometimes they don't work out. So should we even make plans? I want to tell you something about my lovely wife, Laura, um, who's here somewhere. Um, She had plans for herself. She had been teaching in preschool for like 10 years. And she always had this desire to do something in terms of travel because she loved helping people plan their vacations. She loved helping people plan vacations, create an itinerary, uh, you know, figure out how they're going to get there, where they're going to stay, the best options for everything. It was like a hobby for her for years. And then finally, she told me that she wanted to pursue it, and I supported it. And I'm like, you would be great at this. No one could do better at this than you could. So then she did it. She set aside the time to become a travel agent who specializes in Disney trips. And she is a travel agent right now, which is awesome. And her first month of being a travel agent was February 2020. (laughs) When no one could travel anywhere (laughs) for any reason. That is challenging. Sometimes our plans don't work out. The story has a happy ending. She is a travel agent now and After like 10 months, the whole world wanted to travel, so things worked out very well for her. But you understand what I'm saying here. Um, But here's a serious question. When it comes to our plans, when it comes to the plans that you make for yourself and for your life, did you ask God to guide you on that plan? Or are you inviting God to come along with what you've already planned for yourself? Here's a quick little nugget of information that some of you might not know. I I didn't want to be a student pastor. This was not my goal in life. I didn't want to work in ministry. I remember I had an aunt who told me when I was 11 years old that that's what I was going to do someday, and I scoffed at the idea. And if you would ask me when I was in college 
if I wanted to work in ministry, my immediate question would have been, probably not, what's the money like? Not that good. (laughs) But plans change. Things change. I actually went to college to work in film. And I got to work in film for like five years on different TV shows and movies and stuff like that that came through the area. But God led me here through that path. Through film, I found this. It's a fun story. If you ever want to hear it, I'll tell you. I don't have time for it right now. But um, when, you inv- when you mature to a place where you invite God into your plans and you take that serious, God will guide you exactly where he wants you to be. And it is not, all, it is not in the full-time ministry for all people either. I had a friend that I worked with at my job before this one who was a youth, uh, youth minister And he had done that for a long time and he prayed the exact same prayer and he asked God to guide him and to guide his family to where he was supposed to be and it led him out of full-time ministry to something else. So we should be inviting God to grow us and change us in our lives as we're walking through these lives. Does that make sense? Verse five says, the Lord has made everything for his own purposes, even the wicked for a day of disaster. Everything was made by him for his purpose. He didn't need to create you. He didn't need to create any of this, but he wanted to. All of the things that you've considered to be beautiful and then all the rest, he created all of that. And take a look at the second half of verse four. Even the wicked for a day of disaster. God knows through his sovereignty that those who are wicked will be judged, which brings me to my second point. God's judgment needs to occur. Keep referring to student ministry, but that's what I do for a living, so you understand. Um, I've also been asked the question before, like, how could a loving God send someone to hell? How could a loving God send somebody to hell? It's a good question. Why would he do that? Would he do that? Is it God that does that? God doesn't make men wicked, but he made those that he knew would become wicked. He knew and yet he made them anyway. Let's try to examine it all real quick. John 5.22 says, the father judges no one. Instead, he has given the son absolute authority to judge. He has given the son absolute authority to judge. Okay, so he's given Jesus the authority to judge us. But wait, John 3.17 says, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. God sent Jesus to save the world through him. So Jesus was sent here to save us through him. So you're either saved through Jesus or something else. If you're not saved through him, then what? John 8, 24 says, unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. And that's Jesus speaking. If you don't believe that Jesus is the son of God sent here to save the world, then you will be left to die in your own sins. And you will have made that choice for yourself. That's the important point you will have made that choice for yourself. So you see, the God of all things does right by judging the wicked in their wickedness. 
God will judge the wicked. He wants to redeem. That's why he sent Jesus. For all of us who know that there's wickedness in our hearts and in our ways, Jesus was sent to die for you. But you have to realize that for him to sustain all things, he acts as judge as well. Verse 5 goes on. And these next three really go together, 5 through 7. The Lord detests the proud. They will surely be punished. Unfailing love and faithfulness make atonement for sin. By fearing the Lord, people avoid evil. When people's lives please the Lord, even their enemies are at peace with them. So this is what you can carry away from that section of scripture. God brings peace when he is pleased. God, I wish I could underline peace. I should have done that. God brings peace when he is pleased. There's a flow that starts here in verse 5. And by the way, just a side note, writing a sermon on a proverb, really difficult. Because every single verse is like its own thing. You know what I mean? I'm trying to cover like a whole section. Virgil, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to cover like this whole section of scripture and everything. But this one, one through nine, actually works on its own. And there's, especially these three, there's a flow from these three. It's like they fit together perfectly. And verse five is harsh. God detests the proud and they'll be punished. Ouch. And I say ouch because like how many prideful people do we know? How many prideful people are here right now? Maybe I should better examine myself. I might be pretty prideful myself. God does not look with favor upon arrogance or pride or cockiness. And we live in an extremely cocky culture. I'm not talking about being confident. There's a difference. And really, it's quite shocking that we live in a in a culture that upholds pride so much, considering that this was the very first lesson that we learn in scripture to begin with. It all started with this one. If you go back to Adam and Eve in the garden, it's probably the most dramatic and consequential illustration of pride that we see in scripture. Adam and Eve disobeyed God and proudly chose their own way. And the fall that resulted was catastrophic. And now Adam and Eve's fall stands behind every proud fall in the history of humankind because they chose their own way over a healthy fear of the Lord, like scripture says. And the second half of verse six tells us that fearing the Lord helps people avoid evil. Our first lesson, and we forget it so easily, then we go on to learn that when a person's life pleases the Lord, he makes their enemies be at peace with them. We want other people to like us, and sometimes we'll do almost anything to win their approval. But God tells us to put our energy instead into pleasing him, into pleasing the Lord. Put your energy into pleasing him, because peace with God is the most important peace that we could possibly have. Because not only does living a changed life have an impact on you and on those around you, but now God fights on your behalf. So I want to close with these last two verses, okay? Eight and nine. Better to have little with godliness than to be rich and dishonest. We can make our own plans, but the Lord determines our steps.
That last verse should probably sound a little familiar to you. Um, I said when we began that I would be coming back to verse 1. And if you look at verse 1 and verse 9, side by side, they're very similar. Verse 1 says, we can make our own plans, but the Lord gives the right answer. Verse 9 says, we can make our own plans, but the Lord determines our steps. It is like this section of Scripture is meant to be taught or heard or received as one, with verses 1 and 9 bookending the entire thing. So here I am wrapping up this series that we've had on Proverbs, where we've been talking about building up our lives as a foundation of wisdom. And we're capping it off this morning by asking, what is a wise way to move forward? What's a wise way to make our plans? Looking beyond today's decisions, when we read in this section of scripture, we understand that there are two sides to our stories, two plans that are at play in our lives, which brings me to my last point. Rely on God. Rely on God. There's our plans, the things that we want to do, what we want to experience, what we want to see, how we want to live. And then there's God's plans. God's plans that are all-encompassing over my plans, over your plans, over every plan on this planet and in existence. When we read this section of scripture, we can see that there's really two ways that we can make our plans. So how do we do that today? We rely on the Lord. We rely on God because we can make whatever plans we want for ourselves, but the Lord examines our motives. The Lord knows our hearts. You and me, we don't know our hearts that well. Like I said, we can justify anything if we need to. Even when we're wrong, we'll easily justify a way for us to be right. It's not wrong to make plans, but we need to remember that plans change so often. Your plans are not what's important. What's important is that we're following God and that we're incorporating God into those plans. We're welcoming him to direct our steps and to make our paths clear. God knows what path is best for you. We just need to trust him and follow him so that we can know that path too. Let's pray. God, I thank you for uh, this time that we have here this morning um, and everyone that's in attendance today and just all these lessons that we've learned from Proverbs, Lord. I just, uh, I pray that as we move from here that we make it a point to include you more in our lives, to include you in all of our plans, to include you in every aspect of how we move forward and that you put that on our hearts this morning. And it's in your son's name we pray, amen.